Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. From our socially distanced virtual lunch table in Lafayette, we're out to lunch with Christian Mader, publisher and editor of The Current. It's business Acadiana style. Welcome to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. It wasn't that long ago that eating organic was kind of a niche thing. Convenience was king, and farm-to-table restaurants were seen as little more than a trend for diners with big wallets. And you might find some novelty snacks at a grocery store back then, or maybe at Whole Foods, if you were up for spending your whole paycheck. But eating organic, as they say, is really how we ate for most of human civilization. And it shouldn't be surprising that there's a demand for something we've had in our cultural DNA for centuries. My guests today operate homegrown food brands that get back to the roots of how we eat, but with a mix of innovation. They're both familiar faces at farmer's markets, but each landed in the trade at very different points in their lives. Uh, Larry Lemarier spent most of his life in the oil and gas industry, but after he retired, he became a hydroponic farmer. At Cajun Acres Farms in Arneville, he grows tomatoes and lettuce and kale that he sells at high demand at markets. His method is clean, naturally bug-free, and fast. He's currently designing and building a version of his hydroponic system to bring to Haiti as part of a nonprofit mission. Larry, welcome to Out to Lunch. It's good to be here. Taylor Stokes broke into the organic snack business when she broke her leg. Inspired to find something to munch on that could satisfy her cravings without putting on weight, she went vegan and experimented with veggie snacks. Out of the lab came TaylorMade Eats, a line of kale chips that she launched at the local farmer's market. Her chips quickly landed on the shelves at uh, Lafayette's Whole Foods, and they now stock TaylorMade Eats at Whole Foods in stores in Houston. Taylor, welcome to Out to Lunch. How's it going? Okay, so Larry, um, your product is lovingly produced. It's clean. It's pesticide-free, but it's hydroponic and not planted in the soil, so you can't get it certified as quote-unquote organic. So I got to imagine maybe that 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 has an effect on how you're able to to market it, maybe, or or, or maybe, you know, the extent to which it can command a price premium that maybe we see in certain organic foods. Has that made that difficult for you? In a way it does. But what I try to do when that occurs is I change the conversation to talk about clean and healthy instead of using the term organic. Uh, Since what I grow, the only thing I add to the water, I slightly adjust the pH with a food grade acid. Uh, phosphoric acid, which is used in most uh, kitchen operations anyway. And the only other thing I add to the water are the nutrients that the plants consume. So the things that they're interested in are uh, nitrogen, potassium, and phosphates. And we put those in a granular form in water. And then I dose my water with uh, the proper doses of that. And I measure that 24-7. So those are the only things that I'm really giving the plants. I'm not spraying them with any pesticides. I'm not using any other type of preservatives for them. So when we do harvest, the roots come out with the plants, uh, except for the tomatoes, and we're able to extend the shelf life on those considerably compared to what you would normally get in a grocery store. That's really interesting because, I mean, the the precision that you're talking about, um, 
you know, it sounds very loving, let's say, but also very scientific. Um, and it's odd to me, right, <laughs> that, I mean, yeah, like when you describe the product to me, I mean, I, I think I could hear myself as a consumer saying, that sounds clean, that sounds right up my alley if I'm an organic <laughs> buyer. I mean, why is it, I mean, so, so maybe you could explain to us, like, why isn't that considered organic? Is it really just because they don't put it in the soil? The, the term organic in food purchases is regulated by the FDA, so the Food Drug Administration. And uh, those decisions that they make and the guidelines that they publish, I think are largely guided by the big farms. And so you have large farms now uh, producing organic products and the FDA puts out guidelines on what can be classified as organic and things that you can use in, in the soil and still use the term organic. And I would challenge anyone who's healthy conscious to really go into those and read what you can do and chemicals and things that you can use and that still use the term organic. So that's why I try to change the conversation to, to clean. So when I'm talking about clean, there's no other things I'm adding to the soil, to my water, except the nutrients that the plants need and a slight pH adjustment. So you can do a lot of things to your soil and use a lot of different products that are man-made and still use the term organic. So does that clear things up a little bit? Yeah, definitely. I mean, it almost feels a little arbitrary, frankly, which not really all that surprising considering the way these things tend to work. Let, let's talk about the money because I think it all goes back to the money. You know, where is the money? Uh, organic farmers can gain a little bit more in their selling price because they can use the term organic and consumers feel that they're getting a better product. Is that true? Uh, certainly compared to things that you can grow in the soil where they're dominated by the chemical industry. Uh, at least in the organic side of it, there's some regulation on what you can use and not use. But if you really want to talk about clean and healthy, then I think you need to talk about hydroponic. Uh, Taylor, I understand you're still um, making your chips pretty much on your own in Grain Coteau. Um, I've got to imagine, though, keeping up with demand, right, when you're supplying several stores in Houston can be difficult. So, um, I mean, do you have a growth strategy for how you're actually going to scale up to meet, you know, the 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 desires of you know a, a, a metro market that's multi-million people i mean how, how do you how do you achieve that we did look into searching for a co-packer and it really and truly boils down to there really only being one or two kale chip co-packers in the united states of america um and that proved to be a challenge we looked into last year and once i got you know really reliable a team on board, I kind of, you know, looked at ourselves and thought, well, why can't we do it? And I looked at other brands. There are other, um, you know, kombucha brands, Healthy Aid, they uh, stay small batch and it is possible. It is a challenge, but it's something that I definitely feel stays true to our brand to stay um, in the small batch market and just try and tackle these obstacles on our own rather than to outsource all of production somewhere, you know, in Vermont, with, you know, where everything would be made and produced in Vermont. And we're just basically, you know, shipping out something that's not even made in Louisiana anymore. Um, and it's definitely opened my eyes to why other larger brands definitely do this. You know, it is, you know, easier and you take out the fuss of having to produce, you know, things on a large scale. But I just feel like it's, you know, not what I got into business to do. And I'd rather face these challenges and solve them and, you know, teach people how to make kale chips and grain and just buy bigger equipment. 
So that kind of raises an interesting question in my mind, which is like, what, what, at what point does something stop being small batch? I mean, like, how, how much can you produce before you're, you're looking at, you need to buy, you know, outsource it or get a bigger, you know, operation? Right. I mean, that's, it's all, you know, there are brands that are sold nationwide that say small batch, you know, and it's really and truly possible if you have the people that, that it, that care about it that you know are a part of the brand you know it's definitely just comes with more challenges but it's just possible it's just possible because you know we're not doing anything different than they would be doing at the packaging facility in vermont and that's really you know what opened my eyes to the the idea that well we could just do this ourselves it was really and truly going to the co-packing facility last year in Vermont. And I guess I thought I was going to be walking into like the Willy Wonka chocolate factory and seeing something that was like, you know, unbelievably amazing. And whenever I got there, you know, what, you know, I was pretty underwhelmed to be honest, you know, I mean, I I was, it was definitely, they had larger dehydrators, a, a bigger warehouse, but when I saw what they were doing with what they were doing, you know, people wearing, hairnets and gloves just like us I thought well I could do this you know I could do this myself I don't need to pay somebody else to do this basically hmm. so I'm curious so it sounds like right um you know the, the the method that you're taking the decisions that you're making I mean puts you kind of more in touch with the local food economy so does that mean that when you're when I'm eating you know a tailor-made kale chip that the, the kale that you're sourcing does it come from a grower like Larry we would love to. Um, it's just hard to find the quality of the sturdiness of kale. And I mean, cashews, sunflower seeds, none of those things are local to Louisiana, but it's definitely a partnership that we could look into in the future as we grow. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mater. I'm talking to organic snack entrepreneur Taylor Stokes and farmer Larry Lemarier. So Larry, I mean, are you, are, are most of your consumers just people that are buying this stuff, I'm guessing, to, to use at home? Or do you ever do any sort of commercial output to where, you know, you have a restaurant, let's say, or a grocer or somebody like, like Taylor, right, who's using it to make a product at a larger scale? Sure. We're a small grower. So my greenhouse is only 30 feet wide and 60 feet long. So I have a limited amount that I can produce. I tried growing kale when I first uh, started planting, and I didn't know Taylor at the time, but uh, I couldn't find enough hippies to buy my kale to make it commercial. So <laughs> I went ahead and pulled the kale and uh, started growing lettuce. And economics says that lettuce and uh, basil or herbs or something are probably the most profitable crops for a small greenhouse. So I switched over to lettuce and I'm growing a few varieties of it. Uh, my markets are primarily restaurants, and then if I have enough left over, I sell to, at the farmer's market. So I've, I've been pretty fortunate to meet other restaurants at the farmer's market and get to know some people who are buyers for them. And it's much easier for me to just bring 20 pounds of uh, produce to a restaurant than it is for me to sell it one at a time uh, at the farmer's market on Saturday. But I do enjoy the market. Uh, going there, you get to meet a lot of people and I do have regular customers who really like to buy clean and healthy products. So they not only stop at our booth, they stop at others. I know Taylor's out at the market as well. So they stop and, and buy local products, which I think is a great thing that the market's doing here in Lafayette. Hmm. So I'd like to hear a little bit more about actually your 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 setup, right? I mean, it sounds like something that you developed. I mean, was this like a kit that you get online or did you have to design and engineer this thing from the ground up? Uh, 
Well, I sketched it all out before I started. I, I went to visit a greenhouse. There is another one here in town that uh, is fairly similar. Uh, my initial idea was, and I guess I'll tell you the story about how I got involved in this, but it has to do with going to Haiti. Uh, I went a few times uh, to help a young girl with a mission there. And over the years, we, we talked about uh, education as being our primary goal, uh, healthcare secondary, and then we started talking about diet and nutrition. And where she is in Haiti, and she's been there for almost 10 years now, uh, soil conditions were bad. So I said, well, there are other alternatives. Let's look at hydroponic. And I found a hydroponic greenhouse, spent a little bit of time over there, and went, this is a fairly complicated system. I think I'd like to try to build my own and see if I can learn how to run one. So I did. Uh, I bought an old greenhouse frame, uh, then started doing some research, put all the parts together myself. Pretty much built the whole thing myself. I like systems. I'm an engineering background in oil and gas, so it was not difficult for me to put in systems that automate a lot of the processes. So I'm automating my uh, environmental controls. So fans, heaters, all of those things are electronically controlled. And same thing with my nutrient levels and pH, all automated. Although I can watch it from my phone, I do intervene if I need to, but Harvest day, uh, I can go in and harvest a, an entire crop. I'm on now on crop number 164. So I've had 164 harvests over the past two years. And uh, it is a struggle in the summertime because it's so hot here in Louisiana. And if I had to do something different, I would probably add more cooling capacity. Although you can't really put an air conditioner in because you're sucking air out and it's not an efficient system. So anyway, uh, that's how I grow things. And uh, I found that lettuce, basil, arugula, those type of products are economical. Uh, there's a huge demand for them. I've actually considered eliminating lettuce and just growing basil uh, completely because it's an economical product and it's easier to grow all year long. But there's a big demand for the, the lettuce as well. Why am I not surprised that, that you can track all this from a from a from a phone now that's just uh <laughs> just of course when you said well, the thought, technology okay. is there yeah. you know yeah, i, mean, yeah, I have yeah. music in there my plants love sinatra okay. uh, i put the yeah. sinatra channel on from sirius and uh you know they listen to music as well as i do when we're harvesting yeah I, but uh, there is a lot of automation in there so I'm, I'm my son is good at that low voltage control systems and he helped me put all that together so yeah we're up and running with it so, so Taylor, I mean, I got to imagine you've had to do a good bit of tinkering yourself, right? I mean, you get this idea, you, you're going to make a healthy snack. I mean, maybe you run out, you get a dehydrator. I mean, that's some stuff that you can get off the shelf. But at some point, right, you're making a product unique enough that you got to have your own processes, your own devices. I mean, have you have you had to really find, I mean, can you talk to me just about the process of actually figuring out what you need to do to make your operation work? Or once you kind of make that first kale chip and you're like, it's delicious, but I want to make it enough for other people. I mean, how did you take that next step? Is there really like industrial grade dehydrators available to a person like you? There are, they're just expensive and they, um, you know, I'm fortunate. My dad knows how to wire electrical stuff. So things that come with, you know, funky, weird plugins, I'm able to, uh, get those attachments set up and wired into our little spot out in Grand Coteau. Um, but honestly and truly it's just been being able to learn how to make it bigger and more and more and more. That's been the biggest challenges. You can make that one batch of kale chips and you're just making them for yourself. And then, you know, 
whenever you start selling them to Whole Foods, you're just trying to figure out, well, how do I make more all at one time in the same amount of time? So probably one of my favorite things that I invested in um, that I got a couple of and even more of recently were just big giant bowls. You know, uh, you make them yourself at home and you can just have a normal salad bowl and make, you know, a dehydrator full of kale chips. But when you're trying to load nine dehydrators, you know, you need a much bigger bowl. So that was something that I was ex so excited to get a big bowl back, um, you know, last year. And then I still got a couple more a couple uh, weeks ago, you know, because you have one bowl per one employee. I mean, that's kind of how you keep it small batch. You just have one person, multiple people doing the same thing and just small batches like that. And it's, it's really cool to, you know, not only uh, keep, keep it small, but then also teach, you know, young people, you know, how to make healthy food. That's been a, a new fun challenge for this last uh, six months is having kids that are, you know, 18 to 20 years old come in that have never cut an avocado before be making kale chips. You know, that's, it's been really rewarding to then see them learn and just be able to do things on their own and really not need me there at the kitchen. Mm. I mean, so, so you have employees. I do just, just two. I ha you know, they, I have had different people rotating in and out. It kind of started with friends helping out that needed odd jobs. I've had, you know, friends move to Lafayette from Austin, people that were kind of more into the health conscious thing already had made kale chips worked for, uh, one of my friends had already, uh, worked for juice land. So she kind of was already experienced, uh, in making kale chips. Um, and it's, it's been really rewarding to be able to give back and help and give my friends odd, odd jobs in the time that they need. And then, you know, they've moved on and now one of them even lives in Lafayette. She loved staying here while she was visiting and now she got a job and she lives here. Um, but now I have real employees that hopefully aren't going anywhere and they're staying working for me um, while they're in college and just going to school. And um, yeah, just two people right now, hopefully a couple more in the next few months. You're listening to Out to Lunch. I'm Christian Mader. I'm talking with hydroponic farmer Larry Lemarier and Taylor Stokes of TaylorMade Eats. Uh, Larry and Taylor, I'm going to switch things up just a little bit. Um, this is a segment I like to call Do As I Say, Not As I Do. Um, you know, a lot of times when we're talking shop, it's not uncommon for us to give like patented advice or right? your signature advice that's wise and useful, but it's so good that you don't take it yourself. So I'm curious, like if there's a piece of advice, right, that, that you often find yourself giving to other people in your industry, let's say that, that you, you often kind of maybe shortcut, right? Um, Larry, let's start with you. What's, what's a common piece of hydroponic farming wisdom that maybe you should be more diligent about following on your own? Uh, I would say the maintenance part of it. You know, when we talk about water, uh, I have a water well out there, so I'm constantly filling my reservoir with water. And I, I, I tend to think that my water is, is just fine and doesn't require much maintenance, but it really does. And, and I, the other day I noticed my plants were a pale, pale green when I walked in and I was like, something's wrong. <laughs> I mean, you can tell when you're there every day and you got these nice, beautiful, dark green plants and you walk in and they all look pale. And I realized that the water in my reservoir, tend, you need to change it out periodically because the salts that get used up or the nutrients that get used up leave the salts behind. And then the, what ends up happening is you're circulating water that the, the plants can't really feed from. So I think the maintenance part of it is a, is a big portion of uh, the work that I tend to overlook. 
you know, I talk about automation. I haven't figured out how to automate some of the maintenance work that goes on out there. I think everybody's got a, a maintenance. I feel like is the part of anybody's job that they don't want to do for me. It's filing. <laughs> you know, I got to maintain, keep, keep good records, right. For, for my work. Taylor, what about you? What, 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 what's some advice that you like to give other entrepreneurs right there with y'all filing and maintenance. Taylor, I'm curious, I mean, have you found as, as I mean, it sounds like you, you still get your hands very much involved in the process, right? But a lot of times when you start a business, you know, you start doing the thing that you love and you find a way to, to do it and then you make a little money off it and then you got an employee and then you, and you, you start to step back, right? Because you got to do things like make sure that payroll gets out there and, the, you know, that you're filing your records for tax purposes and all. I mean, have you found that you've enjoyed sort of wearing the managerial hat too? Or, or is it something that, you know, you're like, man, if I could just outsource that part of my job, I'd be a happy person. Um, I, I love it too. I love being a manager. You know, every job I've had, I've slowly worked my way up to being a manager. I mean, I worked at Dwight's forever and then somehow became a manager over there. You know, it, it's, it's definitely, you know, my mom's the same way. She's in management as well. So as much as I love making kale chips, I definitely love, um, you know, organizing the aspect of, you know, who's doing what and what the goals are for every week. And I, I really love checking things off our to-do list. It's a great feeling. So I definitely don't mind being a manager for what we do. If I could outsource anything, it would be the social media aspect of it all. Cause I am not trying to learn how to do TikToks. Yeah. Yeah. That's a new, that's a new hazard that we all have to deal with. So you worked at Dwight's the, 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 the plate lunch place uh, here in Lafayette. That's kind of interesting. I love, like I grew up eating Dwight's and I don't mean this to uh, criticize them, but I think it's kind of an interesting thing for a person who works now, like in healthy food snacks, right? Plate lunches aren't well known mm -hmm. for being, um, <laughs> Um, wholesome, let's say, or maybe healthy. They're not, but we have healthy plate lunches and I'm still trying to get Dwight to come and get one on a Sunday, but he's too busy making his own plate lunches on a Sunday. But I mean, I was vegetarian slash vegan back then when I worked at Dwight's and it was, you know, like it was just the ongoing joke. I'd always bring even back then some kind of, you know, vegan snack that I had made or vegetarian snack that I had made for myself, you know, after going to the farmer's market or something like that. And it was all, you know, I was always trying to get everybody to try it and just try it. It's not that bad. And, you know, people would try it and be surprised that it wasn't bad. But the thing they made fun of me the most for was making like a vegan crawfish dip because I would use vegan mayo and everything and make vegan crawfish dip, but still eat crawfish back oh, then. Okay. Because you can't, that, that's a contradiction in terms. You can't have a vegan crawfish dip, right? I mean, so did you ever try to get them to put right, a, a vegan, sure. did you ever try to get them to put a vegan anything on the menu and did they go I did I did that's why I was so yes I was so excited to get into Whole Foods because I make the best in my opinion raw vegan pecan pie it is it is so great I used to sell it at the farmer's market people would you know ordered a ton for the holidays um, Whole Foods had even ex um, you know said they were interested in carrying it but at the time I was way too overwhelmed doing the kale chips to even consider carrying a frozen product that carries so many more aspects of problems and issues, you know, sh shipping and, um, you know, even just holding the product, you know, having that many freezers. Um, but I was so excited because I had asked Dwight first if he would sell the uh, pecan pies. And he said, I don't think anyone would buy that, you know, so it felt really good to actually have people actually want to buy it. Yeah, that's great. Larry, I mean, I got to imagine, I mean, it sounds like you, you do pretty good in terms of making sure that you produce enough to sell to those restaurants. But I mean, do you go through periods where you're just like, man, I'm tired of eating lettuce pie? I mean, what, what what's, what's, what... you know, I'm... I'm kind of at a point in life where my wife jokes and says, I'm only pretending that I'm retired. And I'm at a point where I either need to be happy with what I have 
or decide that I'm going to put up five more greenhouses and really expand what I grow. I think there's a big market out there for, for clean, healthy products. And since my greenhouse is in Arnaville, I'm almost as close to Baton Rouge as I am to Lafayette. And I've been watching uh, other greenhouses uh, online and seeing some of the bigger operations. And I'm, I'm just toying with the idea. Uh, I've got 10 acres out there, so I've got plenty of land. Uh, how much will it cost me to put up five more greenhouses? And what would I do different if I had the opportunity to do so and uh, become a, a, a truly a commercial farmer for specialty products? I mean, there are lots of herbs uh, that restaurants ask me about. I've grown sprouts. I've grown microgreens. Um, I think there's a big market for those things. And those are pretty easy to grow and turn around in a short period of time. And, and there are other things that you can grow hydroponically that uh, I've been looking at the seed companies, trying to figure out uh, what would be economical to grow. So I'm doing arugula right now, and I think there's a good market for that. Uh, so I'm considering whether I want to remain at the status quo or whether I really want to get in this and expand my operation and become commercial. Mm. Well, you know, it's hard to imagine that there will ever be a time where food won't make for at least some sort of good business. I know the margins can be tight and the work can be difficult, but, you know, people got to eat. So the customers are always going to be around. Um, Larry and Taylor, y'all are both finding success in meeting that need. You know what we need? We need to eat wholesome foods that are both inventive and go back to the basics. It's been great talking with both of you. Uh, thanks for joining me again on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Well, thank you for having me. Thank you. My guests on Out to Lunch Acadiana today have been farmer Larry Lemarier of Cajun Acres Greenhouse and Taylor Stokes of Taylor Made Eats. We edited this show to fit into the time slot here on KRBS, and you can hear our unedited conversation and find out more about Cajun Acres and Taylor Made Eats by listening to the Out to Lunch Acadiana podcast. And you can find that anywhere you get your podcast or on our website. It's acadiana.com. If you want to know what we look like, you can find photos from this show on itsacadiana.com or on our Out to Lunch Acadiana social media. These photos were taken by Jill LaFleur, and you can find more of her work at LaFleurphoto.com. Out to Lunch Acadiana is a production of INO Broadcasting for itsacadiana.com and CaraVS 88.7 FM. The producer of our show is Grant Morris. Our technical producer is Eric Merle. Our associate producer is Molly Richard. Our researchers are Ann Christian and Maggie Mendel. I'm Christian Mader. I'm the editor of The Current, Lafayette's community-owned nonprofit newsroom. And for more great stories and conversation, check out our website, thecurrentla.com, and sign up for our weekly newsletter. I'll see you here again next time around our virtual lunch table for more business Acadiana style on Out to Lunch Acadiana. Bye-bye. Major support for Out to Lunch is provided by the law firm of Jones Walker, established in 1937 with over 375 attorneys in offices throughout the U.S., providing a comprehensive range of services to a local, national, and international client base. JonesWalker.com and by Hancock Whitney. Hancock Whitney is here for families, here for businesses, here for communities during this challenging time. Visit HancockWhitney.com slash COVID-19 for the latest. And by Shorten Associates, legal recruiters in Louisiana and Texas. And by Basics Swimming Gym and Basics Underneath Fine Lingerie, the It's New Orleans Happy Hour podcast. Mitchell Foreman wrote and performs all the music on Out to Lunch. You can hear Mitchell's music anywhere great jazz is sold or streamed and at MitchellForeman.com.